Thanks to you for making the effort to be here on a, on a beautiful sunny day that we were worried we were going to get some rain. Uh, it's a joy and a delight to be together, uh, even if it is in the parking lot, <laughs> it's still good. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, and if you haven't received one of our bulletins, if you want to just raise your hand, one of our ushers would love to bring you a copy because there's going to be notes in there that will make it easier for you to follow along. But again, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, I'll just get a few things out of the way right away. I know that it's very difficult to pay attention to me right now uh, in the midst of all the distractions that are going on, in the midst of children in the back seat that are asking for more crayons or snacks or food. Uh, or in the midst of just the beauty of creation and the birds and the, and the sounds all around. But I'm asking you, just like you would turn your radio in, to tune your heart into what God has to say to you today because I'm convinced that what I want to share with you and how we're wrapping up this Relinquish series just might be the thing that, that changes the trajectory of your life forever. No one wants to live for something that doesn't matter. That's pointless, right? No one wants to live for something that, that has no purpose or meaning. No one likes to work on a project that doesn't have meaning or serves no purpose in the world. Everyone deep down lives with this gut level fear. When I die, will I have accomplished anything of significance in my life? Is there anything that I'm doing right now that has meaning? Regardless of your age and your stage in life, we all live with that thought when we're having our moments of lucid thinking. What am I doing that's matter, that matters? In a period of time right now where you've had to stop doing a lot of things, it's made you question and ask, what am I doing with my life? And if you haven't thought about that lately, I hope that today will we'll get you thinking along the lines of answering this question. What is the point of life? Why are you and I here on this planet? What really is living? Why are you here? And this is Paul's challenge as we close out uh, 1 Timothy 6 in our Relinquished series. And we've seen over the last six weeks that Paul has been encouraging Timothy and, and warning him to teach and instruct the church that they need to relinquish this trap of materialism and prosperity gospel and the love of money and to let go of the rat race of more. And not just to let go of it, but flee from it, to run away from it. We need to let go before we can take hold of something else. A great example of this is maybe you've heard the story of how in Africa and South America and in Asia, how they trap monkeys. Have you heard this? What they will do and what the natives will do in those countries is that they will find a coconut or a gourd or some other small object and they will drill a hole in it and hollow it out. And the hole is just big enough for a monkey to get its hand into so that it can grab whatever's inside, the treasure or the food or whatever it might be. And so what they'll do is they'll set these up out there in the wild somewhere, and the monkeys will reach in and grab the treasure. But when they grab it, their fist becomes too big for the hole. And so the monkey gets caught in the trap and won't let go. And the obvious solution for the monkey is to just let it go and pull your hand out. 
but the monkey can't cognitively think in his mind about what's so obvious, and so they trap the monkey clinging to what he thinks or she thinks will give them life. And that illustration is such a good illustration of what our world is today. What you and I, many of us are doing is we're grabbing something that we think will give us life. And really the solution of God's word today is to let go so that you may live. Let go so that you can take hold of that which is life. And that's what Paul is challenging Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. So I would invite you to read with me. We're going to read the last few verses, uh, verses 17 to 19. Now, if you tuned in with us last week, Pastor Matt preached verse 17. But verse 17 through 19 are kind of Paul's final shot uh, at talking to rich Christians like us. And so I want to read verse 17 just to get you in the mindset of where Paul is talking. And then verse 18 and 19 is our theme for this morning. Here it is. The word of God says in verse 17, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So that's the context. We talked about that last week, to not put your hope in wealth, but in God. So he's commanding the rich and he goes on in verse 18 and says this. Here's our passage. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. They may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here's our point this morning. If you're following along in your bulletin, there's some blanks there that I'll give you the answers for to fill in. The point is this, and it will sound familiar if you've been doing our treasure principle study with us. Live for the line, not the dot. Live for the line, not the dot. Again, that is the blanks of line and dot. Live for the line and not the dot. What does that mean? Well, I actually forgot my rope. In the, uh, Actually, uh. Justin, would you mind doing me a quick favor and running in the, the, the lobby there? There's a big rope in there that I would love for you to grab for me. Uh, so live for the line, not the dot. So I want you to imagine, and my lovely assistant Justin will hopefully bring it out to me in a second, but I want you to imagine that your, your life is like a 15-foot rope that's spread out across this stage, right? Think about it like a, a farming rope that you would tie stuff up, that you would take stuff and yank things, and it's spread out all across this stage. It's a long, lengthy rope, okay? That symbolizes your life, and Justin's carrying it right now. This is your life. Thank you, Justin. Your life is like this rope. Pardon me for grabbing my rope. It's a little dirty. It is a little dirty. It is big, and it smells like a barn. All right. Technical difficulties. So I want you to imagine that this is your life. And I'm not going to spread it all out here, but you see that it's a long, lengthy rope. Long and lengthy rope that you have found. All right, here we go. Got to change battery. This is amazing. I feel like a pit crew at a NASCAR event. All right. So this is your life, this long and lengthy rope. It symbolizes your life. I want you to look at this really small end on the front, this knot, this little section, which is minuscule in light of everything else. In fact, if you, for those of you in the back, it probably looks like a dot, doesn't it? A little tiny dot. 
in the span of rope. This is your life, and this little knot is your life on earth. This little knot, this little dot on the span of this huge, humongous rope is your life on earth. So often what we think about is only this. This is all we think about. This is what we think our life is. And what God's word and what Paul is challenging Timothy and, and any rich Christians in this world is to don't live for this. Live for this. Live for the life that really is life. Take hold of the life that's going to last forever. Live for the line, not the dot. I remember um, 20 years ago, and it's interesting, it's very fitting that as I was preparing for this sermon, this, this sermon from John Piper has been posted on Facebook all over the place because it's the 20-year anniversary of probably one of the most famous sermons that was ever preached in America. It was given by John Piper, and the, and the sermon that he gave that day changed my life and the trajectory of my life forever and many others. Uh, and the sermon that he gave that day ended up becoming the, the motivation for a best-selling book called Don't Waste Your Life. Perhaps you've heard that or read that book. But in that sermon, Piper used this illustration of don't waste your life. And I just want to read to you some of the things he said because I think it totally encapsulates this idea of living for the line, not the dot. This is what Piper said. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. Three weeks ago, when he was preaching this, this was 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80 years old, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura Edwards was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old herself, serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. And one day, the brakes on their vehicle give way, and they ran off the cliff to their deaths, and they were killed instantly. And Piper says, I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service, to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all of their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida and New Mexico. No, he says, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest 1998 what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions and billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And with all my heart, I plead with you, don't Buy that dream, the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shelves 
as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a nice golf swing. Look at my boat. Don't waste your life. And I can remember hearing that sermon 20 years ago. And I could not get that line out of my head. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. A life lived for the dot, little tiny knot at the end of the rope, versus a life lived for the line of the eternal kingdom of God. Eternal reward and treasure of knowing Jesus Christ These are realities that awaken you from this monkey with his fist caught in a trap mentality and chase you and get you to take hold of that which is life, eternal reward. And you might be thinking, doesn't that sound wrong that we're chasing after reward? Isn't that not right? Shouldn't we not be chasing after reward? And if you've been doing this treasure principle study, Randy Alcorn has so helped me with this because reward, eternal reward is God's idea. God came up with the idea of storing up treasure in heaven, not on earth. It would be like uh, yesterday, uh, my, my sons and I were cleaning out our vehicles in our car, and it was pretty nasty. For a family of seven in a 15-passenger van, I, could, I was blown away by how much junk and stuff was inside there. And we spent the day vacuuming and cleaning out, and it was hard work. It was hard work. And my boys were doing it with me. They did a great job. And at the end of it, I gave them each a quarter. They didn't ask for it. I rewarded them for their service and and doing something that was good for the family. Now, what would it have been like if my boys looked back at me and said, No, Father, we will not accept this reward. It was our duty to do what you said. I would have been like, What? Right? Because they're stealing away my joy as a father of wanting to bless them with a good reward for their faithful, loving service to me. It was my blessing and my joy to do it. Now, it would be wrong if my boys said to me, Dad, the only way we're going to do this is if you pay us a dollar an hour. That's it. Because then they're starting to get into a contract with their dad on how to work and get what they want. They're using me to get what they want. But serving Jesus is not like that at all. When you've experienced the love of the Father and you desire to live for the line, not the dot, it's saying, Father, I just want to please you in my life. I want to hear my dad say, good job, son. I want to hear the Father say to me one day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a reward. And I'm confident that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, as they flew over the edge of the cliff and went into eternity to meet their their king, that he said to them, well done, girls. Well done. You serve me. Enter into the reward and the joy of your master. You know, there's an old criticism that got thrown around in the church for the last couple decades and maybe longer that said, if you're a Christian, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard this. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. All you care about is going to heaven when you die. And I would say you've missed it. If you are truly heavenly minded, that's the only way you can be earthly good. It's only when you are truly freed up from the cares of this world and only looking for yourself that you can be good to others. 
And I know that's a deep thought. I know this idea of living for the line is a deep thought. I know that the idea of don't waste your life is intense. And you might be thinking, Matt, how do I do that? What does it look like to do that every day? And that's what Paul says in verse 18. He gives us two ways to live for the line, not the dock. Two ways. And if you're following along in your bulletin, you'll see them right there. He gives two pairs of commands in verse 18. I'll just read verse 18 again, and then I'll give you the point. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and be willing to share. And if they do this, they are storing up eternal treasure. They are taking hold of life. So the first command, the first challenge to live for the line is to extend God's goodness. That's point number one. Extend God's goodness. And I know we don't have screens up here, so I'm just going to say it again so you can write it down and catch it. Extend God's goodness. In other words, I will become a conduit. I will become a pipe through which God's goodness flows to others. That word in verse 18 that Paul uses to to command them to do good is literally to be about the business of good. Make it your job, your mission in life to be good. And Paul emphasizes it by saying, pile it on. Be rich in good deeds. Store it up. Be ambitious. Now, before you hear me or Paul saying, you just got to be a good person, work hard, do good, remember, all of this flows from who you are. All of this flows from what God has done for you through the cross. You know, we talked back in week one about the true gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Do you know what it means? Good news. The gospel is good news. And so when we believe the gospel, the good news that God's grace and forgiveness has been poured out on us richly as we trust in Christ alone, when we believe this good news, what happens to us? Do we just receive it and stop? Okay, I got my good news. I'm good. No pun intended. I'm good. No. God recreates us. He resuscitates us. He frees us from this dot mentality to living for the line. He frees us. We become the good news people. So the logical flow is that when you are filled with God's goodness, it could and should flow through you to others. And if you understand that, just listen to some of the most popular passages in the church today and listen to how it just logically flows. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, these are written in your bulletin, but you can read them later. Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Maybe you have this memorized, through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. So you're saved by God's good grace that is poured out upon you. And we receive it by faith in Christ alone, nothing I do. What is the next verse? Then he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God desires for his people who are saved by his goodness to now become representatives of his goodness to the world. Another very popular passage about the goodness of God, I've seen this on coffee cups and pillows, right? James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's a great theological statement about the goodness of God. What's the next verse? 
In verse 18 it says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all that He has created. He has created all this good stuff, and now He's created us by His word so that we would grow up to be His good creation, so that we would look like Him, we would act like Him, that we would display His goodness to the world. This is the calling of the church, that we are to be the good news people who show the good news in our lives and invite others to receive the good news into theirs. And now stop for a second. I know I went on and on and on about the goodness for a second. I want you to think about that. Is your life a good news life? Is your life a gospel life? When people are around you, when people look at your Facebook profile or your social media presence, when people work next to you, do they feel, do they hear, do they see the good news in you? We may speak the good news with our mouths, with our lips, but people don't see the implications of the good news in our very lives. Jesus condemned people in the crowds in Luke for, for this fakeness. He says in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be paid back. But I say to you, people of God, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. And here's the key then your reward in heaven will be great. Because you're not living for the dot, you're living for the line of God's kingdom. And then he says, you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind, and he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. You and I begin to look like our heavenly Father who extends his goodness to us, and then we embrace and extend his goodness to others even to our enemies. What happens in the gospel is that you and I can be transformed into radically, uncommon, outrageously good people. And it's only when you're heavenly minded that you can be earthly good. So when you've experienced God's goodness, church, to you when you were a sinner, you can extend God's goodness to others who sin against you. When you meditate on a Savior who gave up the rights of heaven to come to you, becoming a man, dying a criminal's death on the cross, it moves you to be willing to lay down your rights for others so that you can show them love, to extend the same kind of humility that Jesus showed to you. You become like your Savior. When you are blown away by God's love and goodness to you, even after you really blow it, even after you sin and sin and sin and sin and you realize you can't out-sin God's grace, what an amazing truth. It changes your perspective towards others. Rather than unfriending someone that makes you mad on social media, rather than cutting someone off that offends you, you, you go towards them in love and in goodness because God Thank Jesus that he does not disown us or turn us off or unfriend us the moment we do something embarrassing. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> and we begin to look like our Savior. Experiencing God's goodness allows you to move past the dot mentality of only thinking about what's good for you to thinking about the line of the kingdom and viewing people through the lens that God sees them rather than 
that rather than through the lens of what they can do for you. Extend God's goodness. And a second aspect of this in verse 18 is the second point. Share God's stuff. Share God's stuff. You notice in both of these cases I use the word God's as if he owns it. It's God's goodness that you're extending, and it's God's stuff that you're sharing. Share God's stuff. Again, Paul makes this statement in verse 18, and in the first word it means to be good at giving. He says, command them to be generous, which literally means to be good at giving away. Command them to be generous. And then he says to be willing to share, which is the word in the Greek koinonia, where we get the word fellowship. So this is more than writing a check. This is writing your life. This is a mentality of saying, what's mine is yours. When you get married, when you, when you have kids, when you adopt them, you, you're embracing the fact that they have rights over you, that you're providing for them. This same uncommon attitude that a family has for one another is what God is challenging his own church to have for the people of this world. Now, how do you get there? Again, all this is under the lift for the line, not the dot. All of this comes from God's grace towards us. What is an eternal view of possessions and money teach me all of this stuff that I own all the clothes that I'm wearing the vehicles that you're sitting in the money in your bank account the grass that's in your yard that you spend crazy amounts of time trying to get fertilized all of it is God's everything that I've received I've received from God so instead of having this I love this great theological statement from the movie Finding Nemo with the birds who say, mine, 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 mine. Instead of having that attitude towards everything in your life, you say, his, 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 his. It is God's. It is not mine. This is one of our core values here at Crossroads, that everything is his. What would happen if we, even the whatever, four to six, seven hundred of us that attend this body of believers, what if we lived like that? What would happen? I remember reading a book a few years ago by Juan Carlos Ortiz. He was a pastor in Argentina in Buenos Aires. And they began teaching this principle, the treasure principle. They began teaching what Jesus said to the rich young ruler that said, sell everything and come follow me. Or they preached Matthew 13, which Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And from joy over it, the man sold everything he had so that he could buy that field. They began teaching this to their church. And you know what happened? It's crazy. The church began to live for the line. This is what he says in his own words. When we first began to preach this message to our church in Buenos Aires, our congregations were very willing to obey. I wonder if we would be. Many of our members were bringing their homes and apartments to give them to the church. And you have to understand, in my country, inflation is so bad that you don't put money in a bank because you will only fall behind. Instead, you buy something, anything that has value, that will rise with inflation. So our apartments are our life savings. We didn't know what to do. And so their people brought their deeds, their titles to their apartments, to their cars, to all the possessions that they owned. And they laid it before the pastors and elders of the church and said, we're giving this to God. After six months of prayer, the Lord showed us what to do. We called the people together and said, we are going to return everyone's real estate. The Lord has showed us that he doesn't want your empty houses. 
He wants a house with you inside taking care of it. He wants the carpets and the heating and the air conditioning and the lights and the food and everything ready for them, for him. He also wants your car with you as the driver. Just remember, though, that it is still his. It belongs to him. So now all the houses are open. When we have visitors come to our congregation, we don't say, will someone please take these visitors? We say, you, brother, you will take this couple to your home to stay. And the people thank the Lord that he lets them live in his house. What a different perspective. What if you viewed all of your stuff, all of your possessions, all of your time, all of your energy? Maybe you don't have a lot of stuff. What if you viewed every second, every minute of your day as God's that he's given to you? You might think, that sounds crazy. (laughs) That sounds crazy. Why would you do that? It is crazy if this is what you're living for. It is crazy if you're living for the dot. But if you're living for the line of God's glory, if you're living for the line of his kingdom that's going to last thousands, millions of years past your short time on earth, it's not crazy. It's completely rational to surrender control of your earthly possessions to the king of the universe who you're going to spend the next million years with. So, Live for the line, not the dot. Extend God's goodness and share God's stuff. So some practical ideas to get you going on this, church. As we finish our Relinquish series, I hope that you've, you've made some applications in your life. I hope that as you studied the treasure principle, that it's began to bear fruit. Something that you could do even today as a husband and wife or as a single person. You could make a list of all the things that you have investment in. Just write it down on a piece of paper. Work, hobbies, stuff, material things, all the things you own. How many of those things are living for the line? And how many of them are living for the dot? What's the most kingdom-focused thing that you do? Pick one thing and begin to shift that, whatever it might be, a possession or a, a hobby, whatever it might be, to shift it towards living for the line. Another idea would be to make a list of all your resources, your time, your money, your possessions, your car, your house, your boat, your devices, and then right next to it, belongs to God. Put it on your fridge. Everything that I own, everything that I have is God's. Maybe you get a piece of rope and you put it on your counter or you put it in your office as just a reminder to live for the line, not the dot. Talk with your spouse. Be willing to discuss your budget. Talk about goals, your home, your direction as the family. When's the last time you sat down and really talked about what are we doing? Why do we live in this home? Why do we live in this neighborhood? What are we saving for? I know this sounds crazy, but again, it sounds crazy because we are so dot-focused that we miss the line of God's kingdom. Maybe identify a brother and sister in Christ who would hold you accountable. Maybe someone that you you recognize is more kingdom-minded than you. And you say, I'm giving you permission to ask me about my finances. You might be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want anybody else telling me how to spend my money. Why? Why? We ask for accountability on sexual purity. 
We ask for accountability on other aspects or sins that we're struggling with. Why do we not ask for help and welcome brothers and sisters speak into our life when it comes to our finances? That makes no sense logically. And yet, we have become so mind that we've forgotten it's all his. There's a quote at the bottom of your bulletin that I want to close with from C.T. Studd, and maybe this quote can be burned into your brain a little bit as you think about your life. This is what C.T. Studd said. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I'll say it again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are we doing that will last? No one wants to waste their life. I think all of us would agree. But are you willing to take a long look at what God has given you? And ask, God, am I living for this? Am I living for this? Or am I living for this? Am I living for the years of eternal life? And God, redirect me. Refocus me. I don't want my life to be that tragedy that John Piper spoke about. That is wasted when so much of my life could have been lived for your kingdom. It's not a guilt trip. It's an opportunity, church, to pray and ask the Lord to reveal to us how we might relinquish and get out of the trap and take hold of life that really is life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths of 1 Timothy 6 that we've unpacked over the last six weeks. Thank you for Paul's words to Timothy in this Relinquished series. Thank you for just the challenge and, and the encouragement to live for the line and not the dot. And there's something about this that, that, that all of us in our minds are like, oh, I don't know. Perhaps it's because we're still clinging to the thing and haven't relinquished to take hold of you. So God, I pray for conviction. I pray for repentance. I pray that you'd make us and mold us and shape us into more uh, honoring, more full of your goodness, the good news people who are always willing and ready to share with others because it's yours, it's not ours. It's silly to not share something that's not yours in the first place. So help us steward your stuff well. Help us to extend your goodness to others. Make us people that live for the line. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.